Hi, everybody. This episode with Barry Liner Grant is just a font of information. Barry's mom died quite young, and she has been in the world of grief and loss, helping people for a really long time. She runs extraordinary groups for people who are struggling. She's an advocate for paid bereavement leave. She's met so many people and knows the world back and forth. She's also just completely delightful and really funny. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please check the show notes for everything that she mentions during the show. And don't forget to come over to Apple Podcasts and click on the show and give us a five-star review. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. This is your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am here with Barry Liner Grant. And honestly, I'm like giggling about this because I'm so excited that you agreed to do this. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. Agreed. It was so funny when you were like, would you, could you maybe? I'm like, are you kidding? It's a joy. I'm so excited to be talking to you about this. So we have to tell our listeners how we met because it's just the best thing ever. And I will, I will start and then you can fill in your impressions. So not that long after my mom died and I got out of treatment, I started writing a little bit as people know, and a friend of mine pointed me in the direction of Danny Shapiro and her gorgeous book, Inheritance. And I, you know, looked her up and read all her books and discovered that she was doing a writer's workshop a memoir writer's workshop at Kripalu, this very famous, amazing yoga center in Western Massachusetts. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And I, I was enjoying spending time by myself. So I drove from DC. It's a long drive, but I really like driving. I got there and really could not participate in anything that Kripalu has to offer. It's really like a community, right? It's almost like a a yoga co-op and there's all this yoga and there's treatments and massages you can get. And there's a beautiful labyrinth. And I mean, it was really cold. It was February. But when I look back at myself then, I'm like, oh boy, my my brain was not done ringing as like a, a gong. So I just went, I stood in line. Danny was in the big room and I just like went up and sat on the floor and I sat next to you and your friend <laughs> from college. And you guys just, you know, turned and and you were like, are you here alone? Like, kind of, do you want to sit at our cool girl table? And it was, <laughs> you can sit with us. <laughs> it was this incredible lifeline, honestly, because I felt really out of sorts and maybe not totally grounded. I, I ended up not staying in the dorms at Kripalu, which are so special. I couldn't eat the food there. I just really was like coming for the workshop. And each time it was, it was like college, you know, you find your seat and you stay in your seat. So each time I would come and just sort of sit there and check in with you guys, it happened to be the same weekend that the first of, of anything that I ever had published, published on a major Mm -hmm. online platform. And you guys were just like, this is a big deal. We're going to celebrate this. We Um, were so excited for you. You had the perfect, you had the perfect audience, the perfect audience. We were so thrilled that you shared that with us. And also I would say what you didn't know about me prior to that is that I too had lost my mom, Ellen, in 1993 and had become a magnet since that day for every 
motherless daughter, like some kind of Pied Piper that the universe was telling me I needed to be, but didn't really know. But it had happened so many times before that I was really open to the knowing. Like I wasn't surprised at all when you shared. Right. Well, and the interesting thing about a memoir workshop, right, is that ostensibly you're just writing your life story. What I discovered in there when we broke into small groups is that everyone is grieving. It's not the only thing, but certainly in that room, everybody was writing some degree of a grief story. And what was fascinating to me, because I was coming into from a trauma therapist perspective, when I go into large groups, <laughs> oh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's always like a bunch of assholes in that room, you know? What? <laughs> What? Jerry, you know what I'm talking about? Who like want you to know that they know more than you know. Want the the professor to know. Yeah. Or that the whole retreat is about them. Yeah. And I feel like in academic settings, you know, that's just kind of, everybody knows who that person's going to be and whatever. The trauma therapist in me is like, oh, that's from their childhood wound. But really it's annoying. And every every room I've ever been in for clinical training has always included a few of those people. And my big fear always is like, God, I hope I'm not one of those people. But I couldn't believe walking into this memoir writing workshop, how absolutely absent that was, that people were fucking thrilled for you. If you already had a publishing deal, if you were writing online, if you were writing in your journal, if you had, you know, only dreamed about writing. Someone in one of my small groups basically was like, listen, nobody can tell your story, but you and everybody needs it because you never know who it's going to help in the darkness. And I just remember being like, these are my people. I have have found the team. Yeah. I recommend memoir to almost everybody that I come in contact with that's experienced a loss over a self-help book. Because I find that you can kind of whisk away into the story and yet at the same time, find the story of their grief on the page somewhat you know, like, oh, I'm not alone. Like this happens to other people. And in memoir, you know, that that story really happened to someone. And that's really, to me, how I too found such a connection to Danny's work. She was introduced to me through a yoga teacher and who happened to be her teacher, which was so beautiful. And Mm -hmm. I, I just loved her teaching and her style. And one of the most important things that she shared and she shared it at the retreat was your story is the story that you know on your side of the door. That's right. And that gives you the permission to not be right, but to be true. Yeah, God, I just got chills when you reminded me of that. And I I do remember people asking her questions like, what do you do if what you're going to write is going to hurt someone in your family and, you know, they're not going to like it or want you to write it or what if it's hard? And basically what she said is you write the truth for you, you can edit it later. Right. Like you can edit it later. You can decide not to publish it. I run a grief writing workshop on my platform. And part of it is, you know, not everybody's going to write a book like Danny Shapiro. I mean, only Danny Shapiro is going to write her book, but not everybody is going to turn the process of coming to know their story into a book for the rest of us to consume. But, but writing down your truth and your story 
is such a valuable, you know, narrative therapy is a valuable tool in helping people kind of work through elements of loss. And in terms of like a lift, if you're able to read a memoir, do that, that's grief work. If you're able to write in a journal, do that, that's grief work. And there is absolutely no getting through grief without some work. So the concept of it, I just, it's, it really deeply solidified for me, but I was also just really grateful. Like, you know, there are some communities that are warm and embracing. And I think, and I think not every platform for the grief community is, I think not every platform for writers is, but that's certainly, it certainly was. I would love for you to let our listeners know, how do you come into the world of grief? Where, where is your story entry point? And you know, where, where has it taken you in your life? Ah, uh, well, just a little question, a small question. A question. <laughs> I lost my mother, Ellen in 1993, quite suddenly she called us all. And there was a strangeness about it. She had just visited me in Manhattan and the words that still stay with me are, this is the best pasta I've ever had in my whole life. And she had just tucked my sister into a new apartment in Denver where she got a new job and she had acquired through a scalper, which made her all giggly and thought it was all against the law, some tickets to the U.S. Open golf tournament for my stepfather. She called me and said, our family shares the love of having sailor mouth. She said, I'm taking the fucking day off. It's too hot to sell anybody a house. And she was an epic realtor. Okay. And she went to the beach where nobody else would be like, not like where she would usually go. She went to Sandy Hook, which is a public beach in New Jersey. That's just stunning, a, a park mm-hmm. and just really pretty. It's where you cut when you're taking the day off of school, if you're from mm-hmm. New Jersey. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she went and sat and sadly she had a brain aneurysm in her chair God. and was almost last at the beach when the sun went down and a woman and her husband who were there came over to just wake her to let her know that they were leaving and didn't want to leave her alone asleep. Last woman on the beach. The woman happened to have been a nurse and realized that there was an issue with my mom. Back in the days before cell phones, you know, all hell broke loose and they kept her on life support And later found out about a year later, a story that my stepfather almost didn't share with my sister and I, that in donating her organs, which was her wish, they found early stage liver cancer. Holy shit. I know. So I was kind of walking around with a why. How could this woman who was this epic mother, this leader in her industry, created a foundation for those that were homeless, being a realtor, created this big epic event every year at the Count Basie theater in our town. I mean, she was, she was unbelievable. And any of my friends that knew her were just, she was, she was glamorous. She was fun. We would often see her car pulled in having like a Carvel cone. We found receipts in her car, which made me ever so happy for Burger King receipt that said one, one Diet Coke, one small O-ring. We also found in her beach bag, a receipt that said three pounds of Santa Rosa plums. They're those dark, ripe, rich, Mm -hmm. like black on the inside plums. Mm -hmm. They they come out, but once a summer, there wasn't a plum left in the bag. And 
And she was a gorgeous writer, Megan. And I, I feel like if someone said to her, write the ending, that, that very well may have been it. As devastating as it was to us that she was vibrant one day and gone the next, that may have been the way she wrote it. And there's a little bit of peace in it. There's a little, yeah. as I look back, as I look back, but it does was- that, Does that mean there wasn't at the moment? That not, would, yeah. not at all. Yeah. I, I was, I was just, I was just numb. I, I was just absolutely numb. I was, I was dumbfounded. I saw her at the hospital. They kept her on life support. I saw her chest rising. She looked peacefully at sleep. I, we had to pick the outfit that she was to be buried in. I have a sister who we're epically close and we were both talked to my mother every day, at least once. I mean, it was just an unbelievable little unit of women. And she was like no other. I remember telling a a therapist about her and I turned around, the therapist was crying because I think I thought that's maybe what other people had. But then as I leaned in to to more knowing, I I just knew that we had lost something that, that many had never experienced in their whole life. And she was 50. She was just 50. Oh God. And, and as far as the, the journey, it was really odd because I just kept meeting women who had lost their mothers wherever I would go. But I just, as far as grief went, you know, we, we had an open house, something called a shiva, where people come as you sit in your home and just invite them in for seven days. People came from all over. A woman she had sold a house to from Brooklyn just opened the door and there was this box in my face of bakery cookies with that you know, red bakery string. And she said, I, I wish I could recall her name. And she just said, your mother sold me a house, but more than that, I was going through a divorce and she sat in the car with me and she talked to me about how important it was to date and get back out there. And she showed me how to wear red lipstick. Oh my God. You're going to make me cry. Oh, and the stories like that about her really made her a 360 degree woman. I was like, how on earth did she have time for that when she was being all this to us, you know, like, how, 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 how? And then I thought about when I learned about the liver cancer, I sort of thought about that ending and that really would have washed her uh, dignity and vanity. And I think it really would have made her angry and not so great to be around. So I think the here and gone for my mom probably would have been if she was given both choices. It certainly wasn't long enough on the planet, but I don't think that would have been a choice, nor do I see her really as a as a fighter through that or or really the fighter through like learning to walk again after an aneurysm or any of that. I just think like frozen in time at 50, mm-hmm. it's just, it's how we will forever remember her. Yeah. Yeah. Everything about your mom is like just coming through in your words, both who she was. I love that you say 360, because I think, you know, even though I'm a grown woman, my mother's my mother. Right. And to be able to hear from other people and to look in her car and get a fuller picture of just like who she was as a person and a woman, it just strikes me as like a really gorgeous gift. And 
important to be able to see our parents that way. I cleaned out my parents' house, lots of it. And I did really, I was very grateful for those things. Like, you know, my mom had like 10 toothbrushes in her (laughs) cabinet. And I was like, you know, why did she just always buy a toothbrush when she went to the CVS? Yeah. Ironically, my mom, what, what we learned and I think knew somewhere was much more doer than keeper of things. And so there was very little to hold on to. I I don't remember doing this, but I have it to this day, have a a decrepit baggie of the sand that was in her beach bag. I, I really don't know. Like I said, I don't remember, but I knew I wanted something. Sure. My sister recently told me that she has the scrunchie that was in the bag. I had no idea. And I was like, they're back. Mom would be so happy. Uh, <laughs> they are back. I mean, mysteriously. Forever, forever trendy. But the other thing that I was thinking about is that, yeah. you know, my, my dad died of cancer. He got a cancer diagnosis that was pretty brutal. And so we knew even with treatment, he at least, uh, let me amend that. I knew even with treatment that he would likely not survive past a year. And he died like a year and seven days after his diagnosis. And it was, it was what cancer is, which is, you know, you become smaller and less and less able and less functioning. He got to really participate in his death. And he and I, I'm not going to speak for any of my siblings. We were gifted time together in the knowing that this was the limit of the time to really, I'm not going to say like hash out and repair our relationship, but to just only be in the love of each other at the end of his life. And so I had that experience, which I think, you know, is a one kind of a way to go through a death. And my mom went to bed and didn't wake up. She had had a short illness that seemed to be some kind of flu. I was with her and I had been with her on vacation the week before And sort of the phrase that came out of her death, like she had seen every one of her children in, which is she has six. So that's, you know, no small feat within the past five weeks. She had seen her brother on the West coast, which was only something that happened once a year visited with a a Monsignor who was not only a dear friend, but someone that she considered to be really holy that day and went to bed holding her rosary in her favorite pajamas in her bed. And Mm. You know, she had a couple of weeks of illness and I know 100% that she would never have picked my dad's path for her. That when she had had some health scares that she thought were going to be prolonged medical issues, her biggest fear was being a burden to someone. And so to me, I hated the way she died. It traumatized me. I had PTSD, but I'm really glad for her that she got that kind of beautiful death. I feel like- same. It's, it's, very, it's hard for people to, to really understand. And maybe it's just how we make sense of something so nonsensical, but it really, there, there is a small bit of peace to me in, in that knowing and the everybody in their place thing. I feel like if you don't, if you don't know consciously, you know, somewhere deep in your subconscious, like some big plan, like we were literally all in our place. We had all spoken to her. We had all had that moment. One of her most famous battle cries was like, we're always on empty in the car. And, and she would say, (laughs) lean forward girls, we're running on luck. And it was like, because we were dashing to the mall 
at the end of her work day to like get the perfect orange shirt for spirit week or the prom dress or the boots because snow is coming, like whatever it was. And it was always some kind of an adventure. And it wasn't an emergency, but it felt important. Yeah. Part of it was like the magic she made it into. Part of it was like working mom that we never even took into account. Like she had to squeeze it all in as a single mom and, and, and get it all done. But we saw it as such an adventure and I still ride on, on E and Uh, I, (laughs) I don't know whether it's in, in her honor. I don't know, but I also think there was a beauty to how she touched the lives of so many when she passed we were looking furiously for her jewelry she kept it in a little jewelry roll yeah and we couldn't find it and and we were really oh I'm sure puzzled yeah and it, it wasn't like you know it wasn't like you know gems of a lifetime it was just like what we had left like the the, the things we wanted to hold and we found it ironically behind all hidden on the bookshelves behind all of the photo albums and it oh God. made us go through all the photo album albums. after album of my mother standing in front of beautiful fireplaces where they were in the oh outfit God. of the evening you know like just uh, like, look, girls, I'm on the Spanish steps. Look, girls, I'm in front of this fireplace in um, Arizona at this resort. Like, look, girls, like just the craziest. Look at all the life I lived. Yes. Look. And I went on the vacations and I did the trips and I did, I, I, I did it. And there wasn't much even in her jewelry role that we even wanted. Yeah. Like the gift of looking at the pictures was, was so much better. But I tried for so long. I went back to work. I owned my own public relations firm. I knew how proud she was of that effort. And I tried for so long, Megan, to not to define myself by her loss. Yeah. And so I don't think that I really ever properly grieved. I grieved that I could not speak at her funeral, I wish to this day that I had, I've since Mm. written the eulogy that I may have given. (laughs) Good for you. I I just couldn't. Yeah. It was so shocking. And I give my, I know, you know, I know that to be true, but for so long, I just was like, don't be that, you know, girl. I remember leaving and going into Grand Central one day and seeing this line winding outside of Grand Central Station and quiet people waiting. I was like, what? These are New Yorkers. You know, what's going on? What is happening? Yeah. And I got on the line and I waited, waited, waited. And kind of the hush coming back was Jackie Kennedy had recently passed away and people were online to sign this enormous memorial book because she had saved Grand Central from demise and historically restored it. And she was one of my heroes and my mom was often people would say, oh, your mom looks like Jackie Kennedy. And that was like her big thing, big glasses and all. And sometimes people bestow the compliment upon me. And I'm, I'm, I was going to say you, you got going on and, and the grace and the grace, my dear. 
Well, she, so I waited and it was so interesting in the book I wrote to the children. I didn't write about Jackie. I wrote to the children, like you've lost your mother and losing a mother at any age is, you know, I, I just wrote to John and Caroline. I just wanted them to know that I was sorry they lost their mother. Like she was a gift to the world and to fashion and icon and to history and to Grand Central Station. But I really just wrote to the kids and I thought it was kind of my first foray into realizing that you were I needed to, yourself. Yeah, I needed to lean in to figure out myself. Yeah, to 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 figure to figure it all out for me. And I had my first daughter. It was funny, I got a sonogram and the doctor said, do you want to know what you're having? I, I'm not terribly religious, but my religion is, is be a nice person. But I remember when I looked into the doctor's eyes and said, if there is God, this is a girl. And it was a girl. Ugh. And it was my daughter, Emma, and she's named for my mom. It was my first daughter. I have two, Quinn and Emma. And I just knew I got the mother-daughter relationship back that I wanted. And I went to a therapist. It was hard being a mom without having a mom. Yeah. And that's when I realized like there was much to delve into. <laughs> and then I would say my second foray into properly addressing my grief was when a friend lost their partner tragically there was someone there that was like red lipstick and party dress and people were sort of horrified. I was like, look, she's reminding us that we, there's life on the other end and the party girl will take you out again. And I was the girl who showed up because I had experienced loss. I was the one that could be the listener. I was the one that could say, don't go back to work until you're absolutely ready for people think you're quote unquote back to normal, like all of the things and I realized in my body, Megan, it all came back. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is about your friend. But I was so confused because I was right back there. I was, I was back in it. And it was years later. One of the like, things that I think about. What, what, what fills me, I got real chills when you were just saying that, because I think sometimes we pose that like, it's a problem. Like, well, it took me this long to grieve. And mm -hmm. I really feel, you know, as someone who works in trauma, that our bodies and our minds are constantly moving towards healing and that it will give us the opportunity if we are too overwhelmed and it is too hard and we can't do it now. And we don't have the skills we get to move towards it forever, which I understand yeah. everybody, not everybody runs that marathon, right? We lose right. some people to addiction and sorrow. I get that. Yeah. But it also means that when people say, often I get calls, oh, you know, I need to go right to therapy. Like this terrible thing just happened. And what I know is the neurosciences, like you're not really going to be able to touch this for a hot second. Yes, but yes. for many of us, when you're touching a new grief, it's held alongside. It's kept in the pocket in your mind with all the old grief. And so yeah, I call it re-grief. I call yeah. it re-grief. I feel like it's those grief bursts that come and I name it re-grief because I can feel it so intimately when someone else loses someone. Yeah. And, and I, I can separate mine from theirs. But at that moment, I think I was like, oh, I'm a bad friend. And I like, I, I want to be there for him. And yet it brought up so much for me. And it really was when I think 
formerly I addressed it with the help of a therapist, but yeah. like you said, it's a long arc. I mean, it is really like, it never ends. I just am companioned by it in many different ways. Like I always tell people, I'll always hold like a bag. It'll be a beautiful yeah. bag. It'll be a juicy <laughs> bag. Totally dazzled. It'll be a Chanel backpack, but it, it will be, it will, it's always with me. And I remember telling the same, same friend, you know, I've been trying for so long for this not to define me and his, just his little sentence, but of course it does Yeah, really allowed for me to open up to letting that in. And I had done a class. I'm a certified yogi and I had done a class with my beloved teacher who had also lost her mom to sort of recapture Mother's Day in a way, instead of being angry at all the cards that come out in the card store or whatever, I was like, let's reframe it. Let's capture Saturday as ours so that then we can show up on Sunday for the way that our families want to honor us and not make it, you know, as sad as it had been in the past. So we had a group and I incorporated writing because that's my background and Amy led the class and I did, you know, adjustments. And one of the things that I incorporated in to the room was when we opened up circle was to share the name of, of everybody's mother. Mm. And I know that this was important to me because I realized that in not trying to make others sad or really sit in my grief, I would like very quickly just say, you know, on a, on a day where it was like grandparents day at school for my kid, I would say, oh yeah, my mom died. You know, like I'd say it very quickly. (laughs) And then I realized like she deserved to be honored and, and the name deserved to be witnessed. And quite often it would open up conversations. So now it's like a rule of circle for me. And it's a question that I always ask someone that tells me they've lost someone. What, what is their name? Yeah. And it opens up story and it makes it okay. And it, and it makes the other person realize like, we're already sad. You're not going to take us out by talking about our parent or our loved one or our child or whoever that you've lost. So I really started in, in motherless daughters. And then I thought this circle was so meaningful to so many. And the amount of comments that I received that were like, I've never had anywhere to go. I've never had anywhere to go. I thought I must make, I must open a door. I must make more circles. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was invited on a podcast and Mm -hmm. the end of the intake form said, is there anything else you'd like us to promote? And like magic out of my hand came the memory circle. I had never spoken it. I had never called it that. I had never Googled it to see if anybody else had it. And I yelled (laughs) out to my kid. I was like, go on, go daddy and see if it's available. And I told the other one, go on Instagram and see if it's available. Lo and behold, it was. And I ended up on Elena Brower's podcast. Mm. And if you don't know her, give her a look up. She's a dear college friend of my sister's. And I had been to a session with a a shaman and the shaman said, 
you must collaborate. And the whole way home, I was thinking, well, what, what does that look like? And I thought, well, if I collaborate with anybody, maybe that would be it. And I wrote her and like boomerang, the yes came back. And it was oh. my first real discussion about mother loss. And by the time we had scheduled the interview, I had had my first circle and the memory circle was born. And it was peer guided at that point. I was not a grief coach at the moment. It was just peer to peer. And it was to sit shoulder to shoulder with others who had experienced loss of any incarnation. And that was it. It was a space. It was just a space. I just opened a door and made these circles, put a date on the calendar. First one was just donation based. And as we moved forward, it incorporated mediums and it incorporated writing groups and incorporated, as you said, any way that we could move forward movement into processing, just processing the way that we experience grief and that no two people do it alike. And sometimes it does not happen in a therapist's office. Sometimes it does, but the different modalities whether it was, like you said, breath work, yoga, writing, like whatever it was that you did, it was just moving a little bit of it through you. It's such a gorgeous story. I mean, it's such a gorgeous story to me for a bunch of reasons, because I think, you know, people ask questions like, how do you raise resilient children? And what I, what I always think about is like the other side of that, which is like, how do you keep children from being traumatized? Like that's really the opposite side of the question. And I think with grief, everyone wants to be able to have some sort of growth, traumatic growth, right? I don't want the bad thing to be the last thing that lands about this person or this business or this marriage or whatever. I don't want the last thing to be that I lost it and I am less for it. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Who would want that? But I don't know that we have a lot of guidance about like, okay, well, you know, you want to lose 10 pounds. There's millions of kinds of guidance out there. A lot of it garbage about how to do that, Mm -hmm. but how do I transform from my loss into, and the language that I use is becoming a griever, like someone who can build muscles to carry Mm -hmm. the energy here so that it doesn't weigh on me so heavily. And I think the conversation good, bad, or indifferent has come into light because of the pandemic. I think that, you know, we are in a grief pandemic as well on the heels of COVID. Absolutely. I think we're one step away from knowing somebody who has died. We are one step away from knowing somebody that could not have the usual celebration, dedication of life, a funeral, all that we go through when we lose someone. Like, I just think it's just more in the open and hopefully more in the day-to-day vernacular. And that is really what I'm after in all of my work to just bring forward out of the shadows, making these conversations more day-to-day, more normalized. We're so good at celebration and we're so death denying And we've moved so much further apart. You know, there was this beautiful story. I was doing like a memorial service for my my mom one year. I would go to Temple on the High Holy Days and 
they asked the mourners to stand and recite something called a Yisker prayer. Mm -hmm. And I would stand. And it was the first time ever I thought I was standing to be closer to her, closer to spirit, closer to Paul. I didn't really know, but it, it had never been explained to me in this epic young rabbi who often used to start his sermons with, I read in the New Yorker. I mean, he was really right, right up my alley. Right, right. <laughs> he, he said, do you know why we stand? And I was just, just leaned in and he said, so that the community can see who's mourning. Ugh. And I just thought that's so beautiful. And then the people sitting to the left of you and the people that were sitting to the right of you would know, maybe she needs a meal, maybe her kids need a play date, maybe her, you know, mm -hmm. and we lived in closer, closer, closer communities. So everybody in the community would come by, right? They, mm -hmm. they knew this was the griever. These are the people that we need to help this week. And that, that really changed the way that I looked at grieving, like how can we show up for others in grief? And so most often I write a note and I've been told by many that those notes are notes that people have really held close yeah. as important during their journey. I've shared something that was shared with our family I sadly also lost my brother-in-law quite tragically, my sister's husband. Yeah. And someone shared with us writing letters back to the 360 version of the person to write a letter about what you knew about them. Anecdotal, funny, a trip you took, a business adventure. And we learned so much about my brother-in-law, like when he is not around being a dad, this is what he was like. And the kids have this to hold on to. And so I feel the same about my notes. So people always often ask, like, is it too late to write? It's already been X amount of time. And I'm like, no, <laughs> never, never, never too, never too, never late. too late to write. But the thing that I always include in a note is that if you do have extended family, if you do have children, if you do have people around you, this is the opportunity to talk about grief yeah. with others. This will happen to everyone, sadly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, so, and I think most of us learn it the way that you are describing it, which is like, you know, on the job training. And yeah. then with our experience of the good and the bad, we're able to show up better for people around us. But one of the things like, you know, I get a lot of emails and a lot of calls from even clinicians that are this is what happened. How do I show up for this? What do I do? And I think what happens is we externally locate our answer, right? I'm going to call a grief and loss specialist and she's going to tell me what to do instead of everything that you just described, which is internally located, which is mm. who are you as a human and how do you know how to show up? Mm. And so if you are not a lasagna maker, do not bring something <laughs> <laughs> that's not a good plan. If you take photos, if you're a poet, yes. bring something that's authentic to you. It's so important because you, there's nothing you can do to make them feel better. You want to feel connected. Yeah. Completely feel connected. If you have had a similar experience, if you have I heard you, I heard you perk up when I said the cook cooks, because that's how I, that's what I tell people. Like there is no right way. The only right way is to show up as yourself your most authentic self. 
there is the listener, there's the cleaner, there's the drive your kids to school, there's the drop it off on the porch, there's the do a load of laundry, there's like, there's millions of ways to show up for that person. And there's also saying, I have no idea how to help you. So I'm just gonna be the only thing I would- and go closer because I think what, I think there is a, for the people who have not like had their cards stamped by life yet in grief, (laughs) but even some who do, but maybe haven't processed all their feelings. There's this awkwardness of like, I don't know what to do. And what I say is nobody knows what to do. There's nothing to do. You feel awkward and your choices to have your awkwardness be the end of the extension around this person that you care about, or to just be awkward and keep moving forward. It, yeah. you know, there's a lot of shit in life. That's awkward. Sex is awkward. First date. It's our awkward, you know, new doctor's appointment, awkward. We don't not do it. We do it and we move through the awkward. And then maybe the next time it's not so awkward, but yeah. if you don't go closer you don't learn, you don't glean anything that you might need when your time comes about how, how you're going to need people to show up for you. And you leave that person in a space where if they are yearning for connection, they can't get it because, because they have something in their hands. They can't reach out to you. The, the, the telling of a griever, let me know if you need something is like the worst idea ever. They can't do that. They don't know what they need. If you come and you're at their door and you're dropping off food, you text them, you email them, you let a friend know that you want to help them if, you know, but don't want to intrude. Any of those things are going closer. So when yeah. people say to me, what do I do? I just say, go closer, figure go out closer. how, yeah, figure, that's out how. Just go closer. figure out how, but you've created a space, which I think is incredibly important because what it reminds me of. And I, I ask people this, I say, well, how do you feel your feelings? Are you in the shower alone, driving in the car alone feeler, or do you feel your feelings and understand yourself better in the company of others? Because what I know is that people have an innate way and then a way that needs to be encouraged because they're two different kinds of ways of knowing your feelings. Mm -hmm. And most people say, oh no, you know, I do all my feelings in the shower. And then part of what we want to do is say like, I wonder what would happen Yeah, it would be awkward. Yeah, it would be hard. But I wonder what you might receive if you were in a group. And I think for you, the instinct to offer the group was so gorgeous and beautiful. And what you immediately heard from people was, oh my God, I need this so much. Yeah. And and interestingly, during COVID, what happened was a beautiful all audio app called Clubhouse. Yeah. came into the stratosphere and I stood sort of at the, you know, virtual door and thought, well, I could go on as my PR self, my author self, like all the, you know, sexier things that have happened to me than the grief girl. And then I thought, well, if not me, then who? So there I went on and I became the memory circle club on clubhouse worldwide circles emerged therapist invited me into their rooms. I created my club every Thursday. What I do in the memory circle offline, I offer on Clubhouse for free on Thursdays, noon central, a writing workshop with a friend, Lisa Kendall, who we alternate prompts, writing and art, therapeutic art prompts 
back and forth. It opens up conversation. There's some people that just remain quiet and work on their on their work and some that open up to conversations and queries. Connections are made when people share. Two mothers that have both lost children have formed a beautiful friendship and a support group. It's just the magic of opening a door. And so, yeah, you know, that's just been my mission. And, and even further, I'm now not just a peer group, but I am a certified grief coach mm-hmm. and um, a certified grief educator in David Kessler's new group. So great. Um, just had his first training and I have one-on-one clients, most of whom also see therapists, but it's a different modality. It's, it's all kinds of techniques that I use in circle, but more one-on-one crafted to the client. And so sometimes we write and sometimes I listen and sometimes it's mantra and sometimes it's meditation and it's just strategy for moving forward, for wiggling out a feeling stuck. Ah, I mean, it's such an incredible offering. And for everyone who was furiously writing about Barry's talking, all of this is going to be in the show notes. Um, (laughs) What it made me also think about, I pay a lot of attention to the work that's being done in the UK because like many, many things, they're, they're a little further ahead of understanding that our grief experience with the pandemic is about to be standing room only, you know, we're going to have to shift how we do the service of showing up for grief. It's going to be in our workplaces and in our spaces of worship and in our homes and on our buses, and we're going to have to show up for it. And they have created this organization called the Good Grief Trust has created these like, God, I forget what they call them, but they're like grief cafes. So outdoor cafe pops up an orange umbrella with their um, logo on it. When they put it on their if you're on their mailing list, they tell you like, we're going to be in Kent and we're going to have this thing. And, and it's exactly what you're describing. I think with a little bit of, we need to be getting back out in the world and seeing each other personally, hopefully infused in it. Who knows how long it'll last because we're headed Mm. into winter. But I think the instinct, this is a space that we need to provide more support, more connection. And in fact, we just light that little match and then it's going to, it's going to burn the way it needs to burn that people are going to find each other there's going to be people who are more interested in art and some people who need more one-on-one. And there's going to be folks who are talking about losing children and folks who are going to be talking about losing parents, but, or relationships or, but the idea being that we're, we're really normalizing this entire experience by saying, of course, there's resources. We built them because we knew you would need them. Yeah. And then I think when, when we do show up in any kind of group, we realize we're not alone. And I think at the end of the conversations, when people start to share what's on the inside, they, they vulnerably, and, and I, such grace in that room, someone else will send me a private message. Like I never knew others were feeling that way. That's sort of how, you know, my mom, died in 1993 and 1994 hope edelman's book motherless daughters came out and i read those pages like oh my goodness there are my people like i don't know them but they made me feel like i wasn't alone and i think that's what we all need in grief i mean fast forward and you'll so appreciate this i got this magical email one day that 
Hope Edelman's team was about to launch her second book and they did a Google and there was the memory circle and they found me and they said, would you help New York Times bestselling author promote her new book? And I was like, are you kidding? Let me She's check like, my schedule. My oh. grief, Shiro. Well, fast, fast forward. I got her on Clubhouse. I was able to interview her in my oh. room. And, and yeah, and connect and promote. Incredibly generous. She's a very, she's going to be on this podcast in a few weeks. She is in lovely. She's the loveliest. Yeah, she's the loveliest. And not just, you know, Hope, but many other authors have come on. One of my, one of the books that I, I really love of late is The Beauty of What Remains by Steve Letter. He, so good. He's so good. Right. And, and yeah. what I loved about his is if you are unfamiliar, he is a rabbi in the Wilshire, I forget the name of the temple, but it's giant temple in, in LA. And it's the largest one. It is. And he's been the rabbi for 30 years. So imagine how many eulogies and how many families he's helped through loss of every incarnation. He recently lost his father to dementia. And he said his book is one part apology because for all that he had been through as somebody who served his community, it wasn't until he had in fact lost someone that he really knew the fullness of grief yeah. and what the process actually felt like. It's anecdotal. It's a beautiful gift to give it's somebody. Beautiful. It's like little and short and yes. it's small yes. stories and it's very simple. And he's a gorgeous yeah. storyteller. And it also, includes, it also includes a chapter about an ethical will. And this is so fun. When I called him to be on the clubhouse room, I said, I have to tell you that my, my favorite chapter was about an ethical will. And an ethical will is like not, you get my pearls. An ethical will is, I wish to be remembered this way, whether it's your your ethics, virtues, religion, the things you believe in, the things that you hope that the family carries on in your name. And it was beautiful. It was, you know, his is, is about like dinners with the family and how he wishes his wife to be treated if he's gone by the children and really gorgeous. And he said, and it might be written and rewritten and rewritten. And I am having a ethical will writing workshop upcoming. Stay tuned. I think it's a beautiful. Send me that information as it happens and I'll make sure to get it out on. I will. It's a beautiful activity. And I think we don't do enough talking also about things like that, like plans for our funeral and plans for a beautiful ending. And it's a good conversation also to have when you've lost a loved one, as, as difficult as it might sound, like, what do you want? You know, I want champagne and fries. Everybody in my family. (laughs) And I told him that that was my favorite chapter. And he said, funny, you should say, I signed a book deal today and the next book will be about an ethical will. So I think more and more the voices are coming. Your book is coming. I think we're in a really interesting place where the scales are tipping toward a little more culture change maybe yeah a little bit more I'm sorry that it took a pandemic for us to feel it and to be open to it but we were all one degree away I've also um, been uh, working with a bereavement advocacy group called Evermore and oh yeah with Alison Gilbert for sure yeah Wait, yeah. what, and, and the, 
Well, now there are advocates in each state. So again, if you're interested, we'll share in the notes too, how you can get involved. But believe it or not, most companies do not have any sort of bereavement leave policy or practice. And so you have to take like a personal day or you have to take your vacation days. You have to worry about losing your job. I mean, there's something so wrong about that. Everybody deserves to have bereavement leave. There's there's just, well, and what I will say, because I do some consultation with companies on those sorts of concepts, not just bereavement leave, but the, but the actual policies that I have seen are horrifying. Yeah. Like, well, if it's your husband, you, or, you know, primary partner, you get this many days. If it's I your child, you get this many days. If it's your and pet. In this, in this I mean, day and age, who's to define what makes what I mean. I mean, the yeah. one that I saw was like, if it's your adopted or foster child, you get fewer days. And I, I mean, I couldn't like catch my breath for two days after that. Like, what, oh, what are you trying to say? This is yeah, the craziest thing I've ever horrible. seen. horrible. Yeah, it's really horrible. So when you, they, they have these beautiful calls where they actually teach you about advocacy, but if there's, if there's something that you feel called to do on the heels of losing someone. This is a beautiful way of getting involved. If you don't want to be part of the organization or movement, it's just to go to your workplace and say, do we have a policy? Go to HR. Can I be involved in making what I believe would be best practices? Even the way the company contacts you after you've experienced a loss, maybe there's someone in the organization that you were actually close to and not a stranger that can be the one that's the one that relays the information. They're just such simple ways of making it a little bit easier, kinder, softer in a, in a very difficult time. You know, how do you wish for the company to treat you? Also, do you want flowers? Do you want a donation? You know, these are all things that the company can show up for you in a way that would feel authentic to you and your family. One thing that I do want to say to everyone, because I want to say it out of honoring the experience is just because everyone experiences grief does not mean that everyone is grief educated, that every human idea that you have about what might be good does not mean that that you should be empowered to advocate for it. So All I'm trying to say is there's a host of folks out there who have been studying and learning and teaching. And the concept of being grief educated is an actual concept like being trauma informed. I wouldn't want any therapist who hasn't had trauma training to take their ideas about therapy that they have been trained in and work with a trauma client because they absolutely will make them worse. In, In grief work, there are some crossovers with that right? So that if you just ask your office, what do you think is a good idea? You're going to get some ideas that could be, you know, really well-intended, but need more thought than Mm -hmm. that. So what I ask people now is, you know, grab a podcast and listen to a podcast to deepen your knowledge, pick up a book. If a book makes sense, particularly if you're not grieving, because the grievers are going to need you on the ground, your ideas that come from your humanity are wonderful and loving, but may not be grief informed, may not have the background of the voices of the, of large sets of grievers about what works and what doesn't work. And what I would say is what a lot of what I think is at the root of being 
grief informed is not actually having ideas, but instead being curious and asking questions and being flexible and, you know, showing up with a wide variety of people and supports because everybody grieves differently. We just had a round table at a company here in Chicago, and it was just like a big fat whiteboard and brainstorm. And out of that, the company was able to create their policy. Yeah. And it was everybody's input, like what would feel good for- Right, and I'm assuming you were in the room. And again, I, you're I was, I was at the board with the marker. Yeah. yeah. And, so and, that's all I'm saying. I'm saying yeah. is- It's wonderful for companies to have those big, well-intended conversations, but you need to have a Barry in the room when you're doing that because she's been doing this for decades and has the experience of all of the voices, not to say you're wrong because nothing is ever wrong, but also you might, you might want to consider, or one way that I have seen that not turn out the way that you are hoping for is this, we might want to be more inclusive of this perspective or these voices. It's not, it's just like a little cautionary tale because my experience (laughs) with people who are trying to support grievers is that their feelings get hurt really fast because they meant well. Mm -hmm. And if they had checked in and, and so many people check in with me and I answer the question as I already said it, which is what is authentic to you? There is no list. Anytime anybody's publishing a list, there's somebody out there that's like, no, but I like it when people do that thing that they said not to do. It's what is authentic to you and how can you show up? And we can broaden that out to a, to a company. What are the, what's the ethos of this company? You know, a lot of companies get really confused and think that they need to turn themselves into a therapy center because something <laughs> terrible happened. And I'm like, well, you know, you're still like a, just a company making widgets though. Yeah. Like I don't yeah. think they need a, a, you know, a mattress in here. Like I, I think they need support, but maybe it makes more sense to have that support be outside of the building since you make widgets. And it's a good, it's a good time to have those types of conversations really as, as many are returning to work. Yeah, I think true. compassionate leadership in general should be at the forefront of all oh, it's of so our- exciting. It's so exciting yeah. when people contact me and say like, our leadership wants to have a larger conversation about this. I want to talk to you all day long. This is, <laughs> I want to go back to Kripalo. I want to get Danny and go back to Kripalo right now with you. Thank you so much for this, for your wisdom and your work and your friendship and for being so generous and kind with me at a time when I really was- not fully okay and needed a mm-hmm. lifeline. And you just sent me, I mean, we were laughing off mic about like, we were in the gift shop. You were like, these things are good for healing and this, uh, you know, essential oils. And I went home with like $150 worth of stones wrapped around my arms and like essential oils that by the way, I don't know how to use. I mean, it was just, it was such a warm embrace. And I just love that we are reconnecting in this way. And it's just a reminder that we just don't know who's sitting next to us. Always, We never know what the person sitting next to us is carrying. And so I hope that everybody just, if they get anything from this to just, to just know that a friendly smile, whatever that is, even your barista, your person holds the door for you. We just don't know. We don't know what kind of bag anybody is carrying, but more often than not, everybody's carrying something. And so I'm forever grateful. I I love the laughs that we had. I'm grateful. I'm really grateful. 